Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. That's why we started working with robots to manipulate a fabric formwork so that we could have a adjustable mold and create variation in buildings. So I think that's the thing that gets us excited. No longer do we have to have this mundane modularity, but we can innovate and create variation at no added cost. We feel strongly about our role in developing that technology to the stage where it becomes an approved acceptable practice that that has extreme benefits to the end user, not only financially, but also environmentally. This is Detailed. An original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. The voices you heard in our intro are my guests, Joseph Serafian, AIA, and Ron Culver, AIA, of FormFound Design, a Los Angeles-based architecture and design studio that operates at the intersection of technology and nature. Joseph Serafian, AIA, is co-founder and CEO of FormFound Design. His work explores advancements in robotics, material science, and form finding. Along with his partner, Ron Culver, he launched FormFound Design to employ innovative technology to create new opportunities for design to impact society. Joseph is a licensed architect in California and professor of architectural technology at Orange Coast College. Ron Culver is co-founder and COO of FormFound Design and a licensed architect and contractor having founded Design Build Ventures in both Canada and the U.S. Accomplished as an architect, musician, painter, and sculptor, Ron's fusion of aesthetic and tectonic concepts creates a rare blend in his design sensibility. The project we are going to chat about today is Home of Hope, located in Yerevan, Armenia. 
We're going all the way to Armenia. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click the link in our show notes or visit www.arcat.com slash podcast. Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, is situated on the Razdan River, 14 miles from the Turkish frontier. The city developed as an important focus of trade and has a long history of siege and storm. At different times, it came under the Romans, Parthians, Arabs, Mongols, Turks, Persians, Georgians, and finally, the Russians. After World War I, Yerevan became the capital of the First Republic of Armenia as thousands of survivors of the Armenian Genocide in the Ottoman Empire arrived in the area. The city expanded rapidly during the 20th century while Armenia was a part of the Soviet Union. However, in 1988, the devastating Spitak earthquake hit Armenia, displacing countless families in the region. Metal shipping containers, known as domics, were provided by the Soviet Union as temporary shelters after the disaster. Yet, an estimated 4,000 families are still living in this temporary housing today. Homes of Hope is an initiative of the Armenian Relief and Development Association, ARDA or ARDA, to wipe these shanty homes in Armenia off the map and replace them with dignified, resilient homes built to Western design standards. FormFound Design's previous work and technological exploration with the Mars Pavilion attracted the attention of the organization. Oh, and by the way, check out our website for FormFound Design's previous interview with Detailed about the Mars Pavilion. It started in an interesting way. It kind of started with a misconception of what we actually do. It was a nonprofit reaching out to us. The nonprofit is called the Armenian Relief and Development Association. Ariel Babikin's the director. He reached out to us. I'm Armenian, so in the Armenian community, people just find each other. And he asked us, he said, you know, you've done robotic concrete research. Could you 3D print concrete homes in Armenia? We have a massive need there. There's over 4,000 families living in these shanty houses called domiks, which is Russian actually for tiny house or small house. But it's actually a very generous word because these shacks are just ramshackle steel shipping containers. And they had an earthquake in 88 called the Spitak earthquake, kind of similar to what happened in Turkey recently, where massive devastation, all the concrete just turned into rubble. A lot of it was poorly constructed and they mixed sand into it, as was the, you know, the old Soviet way of saving money where they could. And so it caused a lot of devastation and the international community supported and sent food in steel shipping containers again in 88. But after, you know, the food ran out and they've, they didn't have anywhere to live, they started living in those steel shipping containers and they still exist today. They're kind of the most heartbreaking conditions that you've ever seen. We've seen photos of the dirt floor. They freeze over during the winter, so it's a solid block of ice. The outhouses that are just deplorable conditions. And so they said, we'd love for you to to contribute in this initiative of building houses. And our response was, well, you know, yes, we did concrete research. No, we don't do 3D printed concrete housing. 
There are other companies that do that. You should reach out to them. But we have a solution that might be more readily available and might be more applicable in this situation. So I also teach at Orange Coast College. There we have access to a FrameCAD machine, which is a roll former for light gauge steel. It's really innovative technology, but it's one that's been around. It's, you know, roll formers are the way most gutters are made. And it's something that allows us to send any custom digital file to a machine and have it print all the studs custom to size that are already labeled, already cut to the size and and punched and everything. So we had access to this machine and we said, how about you come over and, and take a look at it, see what it's like. So they came over and saw how fast this thing could spit out all of the studs and track for, for any house. And they were blown away. They said, this is it. How do we get this to Armenia? And so our initial idea was, oh, we'll print it all here and then ship it over. And then it, as the process evolved, it kind of became, let's find a company that's closer to Armenia, print it there, and then ship it from there. So that's kind of where this got started. It's, it's been an interesting journey of evolution and and building this for the first time in a foreign country with a new technology. We often take for granted the way things are built here, whether it's with wood frame construction for residential or light gauge steel, as Joseph was just talking about, or concrete construction or reinforced masonry construction. We don't build unreinforced masonry anymore, almost any state, but certainly not in California. And Armenia is a very different place in many ways, and it is lagging in technology in some of the construction ways that we take for granted. So where we would do wood stick frame or light gauge steel frame, their general method of construction is is a form of masonry that is actually unreinforced, that is made from volcanic rock, and it's called tuf, T-U-F. And they carve this stone out of the rock. It's, it's not very hard, so it's fairly easy to carve, and it's often irregularly shaped. And what we look at as brick construction here, nice and even, coursing, all lining up, that's not how it looks in Armenia. It's fairly random. It's like the pieces aren't exactly the same size. And again, unreinforced. So it's, it's a really poor technology to use in an earthquake-prone country. And yet it is so common that it's used all the time. A new larger scale commercial construction projects, multifamily housing, things like that are starting to use different technologies, but it's unfamiliar to people that are working there. And so to introduce what we brought in, which is non-masonry, it's not something they're familiar working with, and also to introduce a technology that has, as we discussed with the Mars Pavilion, exacting dimensional standards, meaning it's all computer derived. It's generated by the computer and everything that comes out of this FrameCAD machine, once you assemble it, is accurate to within you know a quarter of an inch over the size over the whole building or less. And so the big challenge there is this clash of of construction technology and educating people how the process works and why this process can be better than what they were doing before. 
This breakthrough technology allows for the rapid design and production of houses or other building types through a proprietary software to fabrication pipeline. Arda identified a family in need and coordinated an international design-build effort to deliver the custom light-gauge steel to the job site in Yerevan. We had to kind of assemble an international team, not by our own intention, but it just kind of happened that way. We realized early on, we'll need someone who's a FrameCAD expert who can take our file. We were working in Revit, so we had a digital Revit file. We wanted to be able to send it to a consultant and they would generate the FrameCAD file that's needed so that we can send it to the machine. That FrameCAD file is also useful because you can input all of the earthquake information, the wind loads for that region, and which building code you want to use. So we input that information and, and it'll actually generate engineering calcs and cut sheets that the engineer, you know, if we were to bring on Walter P. Moore, they would just look at it and approve it rather than having to kind of generate all the calculations. Because like gauge steel, it's more predictable. And since they have... FrameCAD machines have their own proprietary screw and connection detail. A lot more is, is certain. There's a lot a fewer variables in that. So we brought in Mubarak Minhas from Sea Steel. He's based in Melbourne, Australia. So the company in Romania that we brought on was Antioch Investment SRL. And they have a FrameCAD machine over there. And they were able to print all of the steel it's a husband and wife team. The wife is an architect and the husband is a really great builder and he builds with the FrameCAD machine. So they printed all the steel and then they shipped it from Romania to Armenia. That was kind of the international team in the design of the project. So I also teach at Orange Coast College. I wanted to design a class that brought this project to the students. So give them a chance to, to look at the schematic design of the project. And my students, it was great because I, I had about five students from Orange Coast College. And in order for the class to move forward, we needed more students. And so we thought, well, what if we, it, we're on Zoom, so what if we bring students from Armenia? So we reached out to the nonprofit. They said, that's fabulous. We'll bring Armenian students into your class to make your class go forward. And they'll get this international experience of working on the other side of the world. And so Arda paid for the tuition of those students to take my class. And it turned out some of those students were licensed architects in Armenia and licensed contractors with over 30 years of experience. And it was this fascinating team that came into my classroom. One was a British architect who has been living in Spitak in the region of that earthquake and just happened to be you know, passionate about this project and he contributed a lot. We got to meet him when we, we went out to build it. He helped in the construction of it. It's amazing, you know, the way God works and how he put this team together and seeing everyone contributing on this was truly something that we couldn't have planned. The team had a goal to design and build to Western standards. It was fascinating. So again, our, our goal was we build this to Western standards and we don't compromise there. So when we first started the project, it was great because we actually had Armenian students going out to the site. They got to do the site analysis and interview the family. They met the husband who found a way to, instead of you know relying on the 
the standard of the time, which is the you burn the cow dung to stay warm in the winter. He built a compressor for sawdust and paper that would create these wood bricks that people he would give out to people to burn to stay warm during the winter. So that was kind of the the site analysis they did. The students also, you know, researched, okay, what's the building code? And they said it was this old Soviet era building code that they still rely on. You know, it must be from the late 80s. And so we said, okay, that's not what we're going to use. Their inspections are very different. They're not going to have a building inspector come out at certain intervals. It's maybe just once, if at all. And they're not coordinating anything with the drawings. They're not doing that. So it's it's a very different system there. And these are hurdles that we're trying to set a standard for and trying to bring as much Western influence as we can to that region so that they understand that we're not just doing drawings for the sake of it. There's information and life safety information in, in all of these drawings. And there's a reason why we're adding things like a vapor barrier and making sure that the project is watertight and airtight. This has popped into my head a couple of times and somehow it hasn't come up in our conversation, but you've talked about burning the cow dung to stay warm, which I can't even imagine. Are there utilities in this home? Well, you had a washing machine, so there must be plumbing and electricity. Yeah. So as a proper built house, they can connect to gas, they can connect to the electrical utilities. So there are utilities and they have a sanitary sewer system for the first time. So they have modern amenities now and they have some interesting ones. They have solar panels on the roof. Oh, nice. Uh, They also have solar hot water heating on the roof, which is actually quite common. We saw a lot of those on the roofs of, of the homes there. So yeah, as Ron was mentioning, the typical construction there is tombstone as the infill and then a lot of concrete columns, concrete beams with corrugated steel shed roof or a gable roof. So you see that a lot. But we used the IBC, the International Building Code, as our standard. And we held the project to that in every respect. And as Joseph mentioned, the photovoltaic panels and this project isn't connected to the, the gas system because Arda wanted to create energy independence from Russia for this. So solar power and tied to the local electrical grid, but not the gas. The gas, by the way, there is distributed to the homes above ground. And so you'll see these gas lines running on the surface, or when it comes to a driveway, it goes up about eight or 10 feet, crosses over the driveway and comes back down and continues along. About three feet off the ground. It seems incredibly archaic in so many ways. So new systems, and we also pushed very heavily for heat exchanging systems. So heat recovery ventilation systems so that they could ventilate the home during the winter and not have a buildup of moisture. So the fresh air would come in and would be heated by the warm air going out in an exchanger so that they wouldn't lose energy and yet they could still ventilate the home, get rid of the excess moisture. That was another one of those conversations that went many, many times to convince them that that this was a critical piece of equipment. The intersection of technological advancements with regional construction norms made for a remarkable design and construction process for this 720-square-foot home. At a certain point, we had to review everything and, and recognize that 
not all of the design would actually make it to the finished building. So our form found team and redesigned some of the elements to make it a more practical building, to make it work with the frame cat a little bit better. And with through our expertise, we redesigned some of the aesthetic elements of the building and enabled a little bit more function. In fact, we added just through redesigning the roof, we created a another living area in the building, which is this habitable attic space that worked out really well for the family who was going to be living there. In fact, they were thrilled to have additional space. Just a little background. This is a this is a fairly small home that we designed. This is eight meters by nine meters. And it's a three bedroom, one bathroom home with the laundry room in the bathroom, the washing machine in the bathroom, and the kitchen is open to the living area. So we, we wanted to make it as open plan as possible. And we vaulted the ceiling, which means that we it's higher than the standard. The standard we used there was nine feet for the ceiling, which is about three meters. The living room itself vaults higher than that. And on the other side of the living room wall in the vault is this attic space that would effectively create two more rooms, the size of the, the bedrooms that they had on the main floor. And so we designed this building. And then as the process continued, we learned that the owner himself had added a basement. <laughs> and certain things were a little bit beyond our control in this in this process because we were here in Los Angeles and and they're just kind of going ahead and the owner who was living on the property and had this huge greenhouse that they had built and used as their source of income extremely resourceful family they dug this basement they poured the concrete they used precast concrete slabs to cover the basement and they moved into the basement while the rest of the project was being constructed before it had been constructed and as Ariel but begin talked about this this new living space in that basement with one or two little windows was far superior to what they had been living in prior to that point and this basement was about I guess about five meters by eight meters, something like that. Not that, not very large. And there was a family of four living in that basement, one room. Family of five, including the grandma. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Five of them. Yes. Two little kids. They just had a baby. Yeah. Husband and a wife and the grandmother. Yeah. And so things like that, we knew were a little bit beyond our control and we would just have to roll with. And it was up to us to try to figure out what has been done already, what's left to be done, and how much can we rely upon when we get there. Joseph had had made very, very clear to the, the team in Armenia just how critical it was that the floor slab, because this is a building process that we'd assumed that we were building on a concrete slab, that the frame that we assembled would be sitting on a concrete slab. Well, now we had... Part of it was a precast concrete slab over a basement, but that was fine. But it was critical to have the dimensions to be 100% accurate. And we were assured that, in fact, that was the case. They, they took great pains to make it accurate. And, and Joseph is going to tell you how that turned out. <laughs> so with any precision technology, the technology, like Ron said, the FrameCAD machine is going to be accurate to a fraction of a millimeter. Those things come together perfectly. But then getting that to conform to everything else on the site that wasn't in our control, that's always the challenge. So 
we get to the site, they, they've guaranteed that the slab is going to be the dimensions that were in the drawings. And we get there and it's about a foot too short in one direction. So fortunately, that was the vestibule and, and we could we could basically tell them we're going to frame everything we can and then you can fill the rest in and frame that later on after we leave. I think that they were they were thinking they were okay because it was actually a foot too long in the other direction. So they you know you make up in one area. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we had we had that issue. So that that took a few hours on the first day to to solve that problem. But just like anything, again, the system is consistent within itself. But then it's that interface between the things that we can't control, and this, it was level. I mean, that was we we have to give them credit. It was a flat slab for the most part. But yeah, the, the size difference was uh, threw us for a loop in the beginning. When it came to the construction, it was an enormous effort to coordinate and deliver, but not without a few hiccups along the way. All of this was highly choreographed prior to our arrival in Armenia. And we're arriving on a Sunday and working Monday through Friday and maybe Saturday if needed, and then leaving again on Sunday. And so we needed to make sure that everything was there in advance. And everybody, the the Romanian team and the Los Angeles team and the Armenian team were pulling together to make sure that all of this worked seamlessly. And one of the team in Armenia, as one of the associate directors of ARDA, is a building contractor. And he was incredible in orchestrating a lot of this and working to make sure that the steel cleared customs the week before we got there. It was going to arrive on a, like on a Wednesday or something and clear customs on a Thursday and that sort of thing. Well, it turned out when the, the steel got there, the form had been filled out incorrectly and they'd written down the wrong port of entry. Oh, no. And, and apparently the prime minister has to sign off on all of these imports. And so we heard about this, this hiccup when we got there and they were assuring us that it would all be resolved on Monday. Well, it took until Wednesday of the week that we got there in order to resolve resolve this. And so we had not so much to do, but we did get in some good sightseeing and an incredible historic sites in Armenia that natural and built that were astonishing. That truly was a benefit, except that it, it also meant that we were extremely short on time on the other end of, of things. So we put in three very long days on site a little bit more frenetic, a little bit more rushed, and certainly a little bit more exhausting than we had hoped. And it just goes to show that the best laid plans sometimes go awry and always have to have a contingency plan. And our contingency plan in this case was just work harder to get it done (laughs) and train the people that we were working with so that they could complete the project after we left. And they did so faithfully. They were fantastic. The other thing we were experiencing too was we had to tool up for this in a sense because they we were using tools screw guns for example that were not commonly used and so ariel showed up with a caseload of inexpensive battery operator drills and little cutting devices and angle grinders that we can cut metal with and things like that and we had tape measures that that didn't exactly start in the right place, so we we measured <laughs> things incorrectly the first time, trying to lay out the the building on the slab. That that cost us a couple of hours until we realized that they didn't start their tape measure at zero. Zero was about six inches away from there, 
or 10 centimeters or something like that because it was all in metric. And it wasn't a metric problem because Ron's Canadian, so it wasn't a... <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, we, we worked through all of those things. And at a certain point, we were actually building with wood. We put plywood down on the floor of the attic so that it would be habitable. And that was another thing. Plywood is not very common to come by in Armenia. And so what we would expect to have four foot by eight foot sheets of plywood they had four foot by four foot sheets of plywood, which when you're trying to build a floor is it makes it at least twice as hard because you have to overlap all of the seams so that you get a structural integrity by spanning different joists. So it took at least twice as long. And then they gave us a skill saw to cut the, the plywood with that, that didn't have a guard, the plate that you would normally rest on the plywood. So essentially, you had to hold the skill saw up in the air and just move it along the plywood, hoping that it wouldn't be cutting off any parts of your body at the same time. <laughs> or the 220-volt electrical cord, which, which was basically just two wires that were kind of stuck into an outlet. It was a little bit rudimentary for construction standards. Certainly nothing was ground fault interrupted, meaning that if it gets wet, it would shut off that no, 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 no. If it gets wet, you're going to get shocked. <laughs> Fortunately, it didn't rain. In a residential application, light gauge steel has not been adopted in any meaningful way here in the U.S. For the Home of Hope project, they were able to frame the home in three days and found many benefits that extend to the greater industry. With light gauge steel, it just seems like a no-brainer. You know, it's not susceptible to termites. It's not combustible like like wood frame is. It's lighter for linear foot when it comes to comparing it to wood. And I think in the past, contractors have had some trepidation cutting steel. It's generating a lot of sparks. It's a lot of work. It's loud. But with this machine, if you can have all of the pieces already cut to size and already labeled, then assembling it is like an erector set. So we were able to fly to Armenia, frame the whole house in three days, and then leave it to them to build the rest of the house. So in a either disaster relief scenario or in a humanitarian housing situation where you, you only have access to the site for a few days, this is a, a game changer. Early on, we debated, is it worth purchasing a frame CAD machine in Armenia? And we still see that as our long-term goal so that they could print all of the steel there. You could print an entire village out of this one machine. And the machine runs off of a generator, so it doesn't require any hookup to power. The whole machine is contained within one shipping container. So it's a factory in a can, they call it. You can really drop it anywhere in the world and just bring in the coils of steel and crank out any house or small building. We've seen, I think, five or six-story buildings built out of light-gauge steel using frame CAD system. So structurally, it, it makes sense. And really where it saves cost is in the time on the, on the site, and especially with so many contractors complaining about the lack of skilled labor in our profession. Being able to work with people, we flew to Armenia and we worked with a team of, some of them were builders, I think two of them were builders, and then the rest were just amazing volunteers who had a heart for what we were doing. They took a vacation 
an unpaid vacation from their day jobs to volunteer that week to help us build. And they had never seen this process before. I told them this is new, not only for Armenia, but globally, this technology, and they'll see it as they're building it. And so we start assembling. We basically broke up into teams. We had cut sheets for every wall and for every truss. So we handed those out to teams on site. Ron got the best two guys that he was working with. I think that was appropriate because Ron's also a licensed contractor. So he was going like gangbusters and they were cranking out walls and trusses. And the guys I was working with were great, but we would lay out the walls flat on the slab and then just screw them together, tilt them into place, put the label on them, move them aside. And we had a system where we were just being very efficient, kind of like an assembly line. We also had tables kind of in the back of the site. Tables are really better to build on versus on the, on the concrete floor. And so some of the guys over there were trying to jam the pieces into place. And I saw them kind of hitting it into the ground to, to jam like a, a wall into place. And I, I said, there shouldn't be anything wrong with holes lining up. It should be perfect. So if there's something off, it's human error. So that was a hurdle for them to overcome that, okay, even though the top track of a truss may look like it's, it's that way, maybe it's flipped around. So they have to flip it. And sure enough, the holes line up perfectly. So little things like that, you know, the software is not going to move something over a half inch just because it's asymmetrical. So little things like that, the orientation of various members was part of the learning curve. Yeah, assembling it was extremely fast. Once they saw how rapidly it could come together and the system, I had printed all of the drawings. So we had kind of a roadmap for each wall and then how each wall and truss came together on site was all diagrammed and labeled. And I had my laptop there in case we had to look something up. I just had a SketchUp file of it 3D on my phone so I could spin the model around and and show people, okay, this is where this truss would go. This is how it looks three-dimensionally and explode it, bring it back together. So, And I'm interested in next time we go to Armenia, bringing AR technology to it. So day one, when the slab is pristine, I can show them what the framed house is going to look like overlaid on the site so they can take their phones and see it that way. So there's a lot of improvements we we want to make. And the machine itself will, in addition to punching and drilling, and it will also label each piece. So what we're trying to do is eliminate human error. Unfortunately, the factory in Romania that sent us our frame for this project hand-labeled each piece. So that every once in a while, there was a little bit of human error that entered into our process, and we had to do a little bit of investigative work to try to uncover what label was supposed to be for that piece that we were trying to assemble. So there were a handful of pieces throughout the building that, that were like that and had us scratching our heads for a while. Just like when we assembled the Mars Pavilion for the first time, we, we started with one piece that was mislabeled, the only piece actually that was mislabeled and threw us for a loop at the beginning. Human error. We, again, Always human yeah. error. But the other thing that, that Joseph didn't mention is that almost nobody on the team spoke English that we were working with. So we had to use the universal language of pointing and pointing on the drawing and gesturing and sometimes stamping our foot. <laughs> and everybody was so good natured, you know, working with us and recognized that what we were doing was such an incredible thing to be doing that that everybody pulled together in a, an amazing way. 
to get this project moving. One of the things about Armenia is that it has a very cold climate too. And with steel, one of the, the characteristics is that it is excellent at conducting temperature from one end to the other. If you were to build a steel house and just put a, a like stucco on the outside and drywall on the inside, it's going to have a thermal bridging with the steel in between, and you're going to be conducting heat or cold from the outside in and vice versa. So we adapted the technology to use external rigid insulation attached to the outside of the steel to as part of the, the building envelope. And that it was about, I think, two inches of extruded polystyrene, XPS. So that prevented the thermal bridging, gave us about an R20 value from the outside in, and then we used bad insulation between the studs as well. And then another sort of newer technology for Armenians, we used a, an EFIS system on the outside of the insulation, which is essentially a thin layer of stucco applied directly to the, the foam insulation. It creates the finished surface, provides a waterproof finish, and color all in one. And it's a very fast way of producing a, an exterior skin of a building. So this is new technology for them, as was building with drywall. It's not, not very common either. And we had to educate multiple times about the requirement for what we call vapor barriers, because when you have a cold exterior building and a warm interior of a building, uh, moisture will develop on the warm side of that, that building envelope, and it will penetrate the wall, and the wall will become saturated with water from the, the moisture that humans are off-gassing as they breathe. So unless you get all the occupants to stop breathing, which is probably not a good idea, you have to put this layer of uh, vapor barrier, or which is a plastic film of like six mil polypropylene on the inside of the wall. And so we had to do this after we had left Armenia and had multiple Zoom conferences with them. And it was not an easy process to convince people how or, or why it needed to be done. And I know drywall had to be removed in various places in order to put this in because they they were so eager to get this project finished that they were just moving along before we could stop them and, and get them to put this building together correctly so that it would be reliable down the road and they wouldn't have issues. Well, they were very receptive. So when we gave them advice, they said, please tell us what we're doing wrong. We want to learn. We want to get this right. But yeah, there were a few rounds of that. The next meeting we had, they said, okay, we've closed up the drywall. We put in the vapor barrier and then we saw all of this hanging electrical on the surface of the wall and we said why is that not in the wall and they said oh in Armenia we're used to building with concrete block and tooth stone and we just surface mount all the electrical onto the wall and we said no the point of the cavity wall and all of those punched holes in, in the studs is that we could run that in the wall so that was another opportunity for them to take the drywall off and so it's it's a learning process and you know we don't blame them that's what they're used to to their credit they were happy to pick up all the changes that we we sent them While much of the project cost was subsidized through pro bono work and volunteer hours this combination of light gauge steel and the frame cad machine provides optimism for the rapid design and production of houses 
So I do have to mention and give a shout out to our church, which donated this whole house. They raised $25,000 to build the house. And it took another about 10,000 to get it built. But when you consider $35,000 to build a house, it also has talks about the labor that was donated there. You know, we were working pro bono on that and the team was volunteering their their hours and the husband of the house built a lot of the house himself. So that all had had to do with it. And materials are relatively cheap there, except for plywood, which is about $50 a sheet, which is what you get at Home Depot here. Yeah. So you could, I, I don't even want to begin to estimate what that same house would cost over here, at least 10 times more, I would guess. But yeah, I think more more architects need to be invested in this product. I think the contractors that do use this are keeping it close to the vest because it's kind of a proprietary technology. It's a it's a secret weapon that can make them more competitive than their peers. So I think the more nonprofits, the more government organizations see how this can be used to solve housing crises and disaster relief scenarios, humanitarian projects. I think it's just a no-brainer that this catches on. At the completion of framing, the team had the opportunity to witness the family walk what would soon be their new home. It was really cool to see. We have a video of when we were just kind of wrapping up the floor plan. We're just wrapping up all the walls on the first floor. And the husband and starts taking his wife on a tour of the house and he's showing them where the bedrooms are going to be, where the kitchen is going to be. And this is the first time that they're going to live in a dignified home and something of that size. And the grandmother, the husband's mother tells us, you'll always have a, a home in our hearts, something like that. It was like, you're, you're always going to have a place in this home. And it was a really touching thing to hear that we're going to have an impact on them. And that's going to be something that transforms their lives moving forward. You know, I was looking at the young boy that was, when we got there, was sleeping in the basement with blankets laid up next to this two stone block wall that was dusty and dirty. And then realizing, you know, seeing photos of of the interior and not the architectural interior that all of us would design, but it's a comfortable clean home and they have toys and rugs and things that make it a home and seeing that transform his life and realize he's going to hopefully move on to have that standard through the rest of his life. It's a, it's a cool thing to be a part of. Through their fundraising effort, Arda eventually plans to purchase a FrameCAD machine to have on site in Armenia to mass-produce homes in a fraction of the time spent using traditional methods. Joseph, Ron, and the FormFound Design team will be taking on more of these innovative projects. Through the process of delivering this prototype, they surely walked away with a few lessons learned. We're going to insist that they send us a picture of the tape measure on the slab to guarantee that it's the size we designed. (laughs) That's the first thing. But yeah, I think having more control over what's being built and finding ways to assure that. So whether it's weekly Zoom calls and making sure that all of the uncertainties are resolved before we get there, making sure that the steel has gotten out of customs before we arrive. 
making sure that they have a a long-term contractor on staff who's going to oversee the entire duration of the project. Those are things that we'd like to see happen. And in the design process, now that we have our international team from Melbourne, Australia to Romania already in place, I think there's going to be less stress in bringing everyone together for the design aspect of it. So I think we can be more efficient both in the design and have hopefully more oversight and control over the construction. This sounds to me like a game changer. If people are are willing to be a little bit more open-minded and a little less resistant to change, which is a, is a challenge sometimes in our industry, do you see this catching on? I do. And it's, it's fascinating to see every movement in architecture seems to always piggyback on an innovation in technology, whether it's steel and glass with the modernist movement. I think we have the ability to build a new movement in architecture based on this CAD CAM process, computer-aided design to computer-aided manufacturing, so that we're not just mass producing houses anymore, tract houses, we're mass customizing homes, and we're able to, to create more variation in design, which is something that Ron and I have always been interested in. That's why we started working with robots to manipulate a fabric formwork so that we could have a adjustable mold and create variation in buildings. So I think that's the thing that gets us excited to answer your first question is no longer do we have to have this mundane modularity, but we can innovate and create variation at no added cost. Or less cost in some cases, it sounds like. Yeah. We've been working on developing panelized systems using FrameCAD as well, essentially creating a kit of parts that would be shipped to a job site on on a flatbed truck with electrical and plumbing and mechanical systems built in in the factory prior to being shipped to the job site and and connected panel by panel as directed on the site. We we actually developed a a scheme for a 12-story multifamily building using this system that we think could really be a game changer in in the construction industry. The technology is there. It's in the pioneering stages. And we feel strongly about our role in developing that technology to the stage where it becomes an approved, acceptable practice that, that has extreme benefits to the end user, not only financially, but also environmentally. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. As a company that is consistently on the leading edge of technology and new opportunities for design, I was curious what Joseph and Ron saw as trending technologies and opportunities that the rest of us should be adopting sooner so we can do better. I look at at homelessness as being one of the, the great challenges of our era, where in Los Angeles County, I believe now we have more than 60,000 homeless individuals, and they are distributed amongst the area. I've got some people living on the streets just a couple of doors away from our home. And many people migrate to California being homeless because it, it has one of the greatest climates in the, in the country that's more livable in all the seasons. And finding a way to house these people is one of 
the great challenges. I was at an event last night locally with the Venice Community Housing that's mission is to house the formerly homeless or the currently homeless with with permanent assisted living and affordable housing. And it is such a challenge to build properties for these people and to give something back to the community. And it is for the entire community. It many, many people have such animosity to homeless people who are going through tremendous struggles just to survive, do things that we all take for granted. Finding the land to build these projects on is an extreme challenge. In Los Angeles, the city probably owns the greatest inventory of land that's available, that are parking lots that are not as needed, empty, vacant lots distributed amongst LA County. And churches are now being approached and are partnering with some affordable housing companies to offer their parking lots to build affordable housing and find a way to make it a, a win-win situation for everybody. But along with this comes building technology and finding a way to do it more efficiently. That's one of the things that Joseph and I are working on is coming up with systems that are reliable, efficient, environmentally friendly, the less waste, the embodied carbon that goes into the, uh, building a structure these days is unbelievable. And all of that embodied carbon will result in faster global warming. And, and that's something that we're trying to, doing our utmost to reduce. These are some of the challenges. I don't know that anybody has got a solution per se, but we are striving toward those ends because we feel strongly that everybody deserves to be housed in a respectful way. Yeah, I, I think for us, what we've always done is tried to approach new technologies without preconceptions. So if if we were to start working with an industrial robot arm and say, well, this is what they've been used for in the past and keep the that system going, I think it doesn't help us as a profession, but reappropriating technology into new domains is something that I keep seeing as a theme. And Ron and I are not technology experts. We're not roboticists. We're, uh, we're architects. And I think that's understanding what we're good at and what we're not good at and what we need to outsource and find an expert who's an expert in FrameCAD software, which it's not our expertise. And, you know, I don't want to be a, an expert in coding robots, but I do want to be able to find applications for that technology to help families living in poverty. Those are the things that I think motivate us. And I think more architects could find ways to reappropriate technology to do different things. That's how our training has kind of geared us to think. I think the architecture education is one of the best that you can get. And so just that out of the box thinking, I tell my students that you're going to be learning a new software almost every week. So when they groan about it in the beginning, you just say, get used to it because it's exciting, but you'll find applications for that software and for that hardware and that technology that go beyond our thinking about architecture. So I think we have to be inspired by the technology, but not see it as, a, as an end in itself. It has to be a means to an end. And it's just like any other tool, right? We're finding a new tool and finding what else we can build with that tool. 
I knew I would really enjoy this conversation with Joseph and Ron and was so excited to have them back. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. Endeavor to to push for net positive design, meaning positive energy that people can power their buildings, their homes, their businesses through photovoltaics and other energy generating means that don't lead to global warming and also building with as little embodied carbon as possible so that we we find a way to to move forward and leave a planet behind for generations to come that isn't inhabitable because that's that is one of the greatest things leading to conflict it's going to be leading to great conflict around the world as resources dwindle no, I, I completely agree with Ron's statement on resilience and sustainability and all that. I think that's a big part of what we're doing. I think the other part as technologists is we also have to realize the moment we're in in architecture. We're in a society that's over-mediated, over-saturated with content. And I think as architects, we have a responsibility to to reflect on that and say, okay, is, is this the direction we want to go? Is this how we want to use technology? How can we use technology for the good and find new applications for technologies that, that aren't being used in that way? I think that's our job as architects and creative thinkers is to, to challenge the technology and not just use it for the, the ways that it's been designed. So I think that's something that we take into our practice and we we always try to do in, in each of our projects. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.